Hello, welcome to Farmgate. I'm Finn Locustain, the chief executive of Farmwell and founder of the Food and Global Security Network. A regenerative agricultural and environmental transformation depends upon a resurgence of localism, of shortened supply chains and a better connection between farmers and citizens. But localism is championed not only by green activists and middle-class enthusiasts for sustainable food, but by far-right politicians who pronounce their own vision of localism centred on a tough approach to immigration. More than one in three people voted for Marine Le Pen in the French presidential elections. Donald Trump narrowly lost a second term in the USA, and Brexit continues to shake the very foundations of the United Kingdom. As the ecological crisis accelerates, food inequality and pressures on migration will only deepen. How can we safeguard food systems in a more ecologically chaotic world with accelerating human migration? Can we find a popular but inclusive vision of national localism? Can it become a force for good? And if so, what role does food play in helping to build and maintain a peaceful, stable and moral society? I'm joined by Baroness Bennett of Manor Castle, otherwise known as Natalie Bennett of the Green Party of England and Wales, and by Sue Pritchard, the Chief Executive of the Food Farming and Countryside Commission. Welcome both. Natalie, as we've seen in the recent French elections, the far right views people's interest in localism as an opportunity to decontaminate their brand, but stronger immigration control remains central to their message. Are immigration levels a threat to localism? Well, when this proposition was put to me, what I immediately thought of was the um, Scottish independence referendum. And I was up there campaigning with the Scottish Greens. And what they were presenting very clearly and very popularly was a sense of civic nationalism, a kind of, you know, which in this context is a localism, a attachment to an area, to in this case a country, um, that very much said the Afghan or uh, Ukrainian refugee who arrived last week is as much as this as a part of our community as is the person who's, you know, traces back six generations and has a title or something. And so I think this is what happens in real life. We've seen this in communities now up and down the land, uh, welcoming um, Ukrainian refugees as they've welcomed Afghan and Syrian refugees before them. Communities open their arms to newcomers and that's part of their community identity. And there's absolutely no reason why we can't see a foundation in, 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 in localism. We have, like the far right, been opposed to globalization. And this is something that Mike Green's My Part of Politics goes back a very long way. You think back to protests against globalization 20 years ago, which very much came from, from my side of politics. You think about the fact that we've been campaigning against ISDS, investor state dispute settlement procedures, uh, which have just come to the forefront again. This is something that very much is part of our politics. What we want to say is we have a hopeful, inclusive, welcoming, caring kind of localism. And that's the localism I think people want. Now, as environmentalists, we frequently draw attention to the fact that resources are limited. And now, as the cost of living rises and the quality of public services falls, with many people feeling their power and personal agency disintegrating... Is it not reasonable for other people to draw a parallel with, with what we've been saying ourselves and say, well, look, we just can't afford more immigration. Public services are simply under too much pressure. Well, this is an argument that I've been having um, for the last decade or more. And I have a very simple answer to this. And I found on the doorsteps it works very well because what we've had is two largest parties have been uh, over that decade and more very happy to blame immigration for their own failures. If I ask people who say they're concerned about immigration, what are they concerned about? The primarily the answers that you get are um, crowded schools and hospitals, housing's too expensive, my kids can't get a council house, we can't get good jobs, there's not enough wages. All of those things are not the result of immigration. You know, many immigrants come in, they have been staffing our health service. Indeed, you're far more likely to encounter an immigrant in the NHS helping you than they are in the queue with you. Many immigrants have built our homes. And so what we've seen is neoliberalism, our political structures that's benefited the few um, has seen 1% get richer and richer and everyone else struggling for resources. And when you say that to people, they go, oh yeah, I, I can start to see that. But the problem is that it's been a real struggle to get that that narrative into the public domain when you've got the two largest parties who've really essentially been 
bowing over a very long period of time to UKIP and then the Brexit party. So do you have thoughts on that, on this, this sort of resources issue? I very much agree with Natalie on the points that she's just making there. This is about um, identity and it's about culture, but it's about how those concepts have been weaponized in service of particular purposes. Because if, if I look across at France, you know, an equivalent country in terms of size to the UK, there is a very, very strong commitment to to local arrangements, to strengthening local democracy, local food systems, uh, local health care. So I think the sorts of things that we're going to be talking about today almost exemplify the way that populism takes complex issues and tries to weaponize them with simple answers. And pretty much all we're going to talk about, I suspect, is going to be prefaced by it's complicated. There are many other issues that we need to take into account when we pick off one or two or three of these issues. And and actually, I think being able to think in systems, whether they're local systems or big global systems, for me is the key to reframing how we talk about localism to differentiate it from the populist version of localism that is doing so much damage around the world at the moment. So that's all very well, but most people don't really spend a huge amount of time thinking about politics. They require a simplicity, which is why populism is so successful and why it works so well, perhaps, because it does distill really quite complex things into very simple messages, and often they're around blame. But surely there's a failure from our side that we're not finding ways of simplifying the solutions that we want to represent. Arguably, yes. I, 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 you're, you're right. Let me pick up your first point, uh, which is you know a very reasonable pushback, Finlow. People don't think in systems, but we, we live in systems. We live intersectional lives. We navigate policy topics all of the time. We move from, you know, if, if we're just, you know, going to the doctors from where I live in the countryside, you know, hopping on a bus to get to the doctors to do a quick shop and come home, I'm navigating transport policy, I'm navigating health policy, I'm navigating development, huge range of policy areas in the way I live my everyday life. And we all do. So we all live in systems absolutely naturally. It's policy that makes it complicated. And it's when we try and shoehorn our lived experience into policy conversations, people are very good at understanding the relationships between different policy areas in their in their local lives. They're very good at identifying where the problems and the issues are. And they're often very good at identifying where the solutions lie. Natalie, how do you think we simplify some of these complex messages when we're trying to talk to people? I think what we have to do is paint pictures and emotions of what the future looks like. And I think the far right goes back to some rosy uh, glasses, imaginary past. There's a real failure. And I think there's a great deal of job work to be done is what does the countryside look like when we have a universal basic income, a four day working week as standard. I always say to um, when I'm speaking to creative people, you know, artists, movie makers, etc. Uh, I don't want to see any more zombie movie, movies or apocalypse novels. I want to see a Hollywood rom-com set out against, you know, in the beautiful countryside where boy meets boy, boy loses boy, boy gets boy again, and it's all worked out in 20 or 30 years' time. We need to show people what it feels like, focus on emotions, focus on those pictures, rather than dry policy solutions, which, as Sue very rightly says, is very hard for people to relate to. I very much believe that, certainly in politics, that hope is actually a far more productive emotion than fear. And hope is the emotion of what I would say is very, very broadly defined our side of politics. Whereas fear, you know, we've got to build walls to keep those terrible others out, is the very basis of the kind of politics that we're uh, talking about today. Let's go into one of those narratives, Sue. And there's been ample research to show that Britain can still feed itself, and in fact it can feed itself better following a transition to agroecology. We're currently at 67 million people. How many more can Britain feed? At the moment, Britain is wasting something like six and a half million tonnes worth of food that's good to eat. Now, that actually adds up to 200 meals for every man, woman and child in the country every year. So the questions perhaps are not about you know, how many more can we feed, but how many more should we be feeding from the food that we already have available? Because at the moment, we know that far too many people in the UK right now are struggling to feed themselves. They're making really difficult decisions about 
whether to you know keep their you know keep their cookers on or turn their cookers on and keep their fridges on i'm hearing in some cases so the question of how many more people could we feed perhaps needs to be unpacked a little bit more carefully the first thing i think it's important to say is that a transition to agroecology will feed the uk population healthy nutritious sustainably produced food with more horticulture, more well-produced fruit, veg, nuts and pulses, and from ruminants grazing across um, the, the grass and farmed landscape. And that's without synthetic fertilizers, without pesticides, and minimizing hugely the nutrient losses. For all of those things, we need to think about the conditions that would have to be created for that to be really effective. And the waste stats I gave you at the start are pretty critical to that. So we absolutely do have to think about how we transform what is currently a commodified, consolidated, financialized global food system where fewer and fewer products are being produced by fewer and fewer companies and those companies are all trying to get a piece out of the food pie whilst primary producers and citizens are taking all the risks. Thanks, Sue. Natalie, you wanted to come in. Yes, just to say that I might even add to Sue's uh, food waste figure and about a third of our arable land is going to feed food for animals. Now, some of that is necessary, of course, you know, overwinter feed, etc. But a significant part of it is actually going into factory farming, particularly of chickens and pigs. I said I've just been in Herefordshire. Our rivers are in an absolutely dreadful state, and that's a major contributor to that. It's also a huge issue in terms of antimicrobial resistance, something I'm planning to work on a great deal more in the next coming parliament. Feeding perfectly good food to animals to produce much less food is food waste. And if we add that food waste figure in, um, that's absolutely crucial. And you know, what we have is a government that's heading in the wrong direction. Just as we talk, um, they've postponed the planned, very limited rules on buy one, get one free uh, on junk food. We don't have a government that's saying, how can we really help people eat more fresh fruit and vegetables, which could support local growers, all those steps onwards. We need to see those kind of positive policies. And if we, you know, going back to the question of numbers, we could have a, a third less people in the UK and we still wouldn't be self-sufficient in food, but that's because of the nature of our food system, not because we can't actually feed those people. So I just want to come back to this idea of national or foreign, of inside or outside. And when the Food Farming and Countryside Commission promotes food system localism alongside measures to protect British producers from lower quality food imports so that the standards at home are protected, do you think there's a danger of mixing messages and, and somehow reinforcing the idea that foreign is bad? I mean, that, that is that is a real risk. Um, and that's not the position that we take at all. I think the position that we take builds on the work that we do with partners such as the Food and Land Use Coalition, who are working with farmers and farm groups in countries in other parts of the world, often developing countries who are having to think extremely hard of their own transition to a, a, a form of agriculture that feeds their own communities much better, but also deals with an incredibly pressing climate crisis that they're facing right now already. We say that in the UK, we need to take more responsibility for growing more of the food that we are ecologically suited to grow. And we need to be raising the standards progressively, the environmental standards and the, the health standards of the food we grow, because that is the right thing to do. And we should be trading in progressive and fair relationships with other countries around the world who are also growing the sorts of foods that they are ecologically best suited to grow. Trade is valuable. Where we depart very dramatically from the globalisation agenda is when whole countries become monocultures in service of, a, of an industrialised agriculture system. So all they're growing is food for export to the affluent north and they're struggling to grow sufficient healthy food for their own communities whilst also seeing you know a massive clearance of land from small and medium-sized farming enterprises and, and i think what this means ultimately is that we in the global north have to take much more responsibility for dramatically reducing our own consumption of the world's resources while supporting the developing world to get to a place where they can meet their own basic needs with dignity so what you're talking about there is really combining a vision of localism with a vision for progressive internationalism 
criticism as well. But at the same time, I just want to come back on that idea that, you know, the FFCC, along with many organisations, is wanting to maintain high British standards and make sure that imports um, meet those standards. And there is a protectionist element about that, surely. Well, I don't, I don't know if it's necessarily protectionist. It can risk that. I mean, granted, I think there are some versions of that narrative that can get very, very close to a kind of slightly unedifying nationalism. But in my experience, farmers in the global south, in developing countries, want to produce food safely. They know fundamentally that they are deeply dependent on an environment, on an ecosystem that supports that farming. They get driven into versions of farming that is extractive and that depletes their own environment. So it's not that people in the global south want anything different. It's just that global agriculture has made it really difficult for them to achieve that. So I, I don't think it is. Um, I don't think it is an either or at all. I think it is a both and. And really, it's uh, the target for maintaining those high standards and, and trying to stop imports from lower standards isn't about trying to stop food uh, imports from the global south, is it? It's about trying to stop imports from uh, richer nations that have invested heavily in these industrialized systems that are so extractive, which is allowing them to uh, to, to produce food more cheaply. That we're then sort of railing against and trying to avoid having into our own system because it undermines our own farmers' ability to deliver uh, much more ecologically sound agriculture. Natalie, I just wonder if we could sort of go back to this idea around communicating ideas. It's much easier to blame other people for the problems that we face than it is to accept and take ownership and find solutions to them. And I know that, that, you know, both you and Sue are very good at finding these solutions, but a lot of political parties seem to find it very difficult to articulate them. So aren't populist parties always going to find it easier to win? Uh, I don't think that's that's true at all. I think there has been a period of, of a time where far-right parties have been very successful. And um, uh, perhaps controversially, I'll say that I think we have a far-right government in the UK but we've just seen the, the recent local elections, which I have to note that the Green Party did spectacularly well. And that's very much a politics that's founded in the local. And it's a local that you know, ranges everywhere from North Yorkshire right down to uh, the, the city of Bristol, to you know, two very different places. So it is possible to tell these really good and different diverse stories. But I think to pick up a couple of points about um, what Sue was saying, I really want to pick up on the issue of industrial lab produced food. And there's, behind this is a fundamental understanding that somehow humans can be more efficient than nature, that we can invent processes um, that, uh, you know, actually use resources better than nature does. And many years ago, actually, one of the cops, I heard the Institute for Applied Systems Analysis in Vienna talking about, they were talking about the African savanna, about how it was 100 times more productive than the farmland that replaced it. And if we think about, you know, the fens again, what were known as swamps, there were far more productive than the, than the agricultural land we have now, if you think about actual biological productivity. So what we have to do in places like Wakelands, um, agroforestry, for example, do this very well, of, of really you know, in harnessing the productivity of nature. And that's going to be far, far better than anything we're going to do by creating this really simplified artificial system. And, and also just on the, um, on the international trade, you know, there's another way of looking at this, particularly given our current global situation and food security. Should we really be taking food out of other people's mouths? And the practical reality of that, I've lived in Thailand. We probably still do import large amounts of prawns from Thailand. Uh, what you saw were small farmers growing food for local consumption, displaced for giant uh, prawn farms, which salinated the land and you know, had to be discarded and left essentially as waste after a few years. Um, and that was not good for the people of Thailand. It was good for a few people who made large sums of money, but it's not a long-term solution and it's not something that's feeding people. Clearly, there's still a big debate, a big argument that's taking place around food systems and the type of food systems that we need to feed ourselves, to feed people globally uh, and to deliver the environmental change that we need. And that argument is deep, it's continuing. And in coming decades, if we don't find a positive way of sorting this out very, very rapidly, then the impact of the ecological crisis, which is unfolding, around us at the same time as we're having this discussion are likely to become ever deeper. 
What do you expect to happen in terms of global migration in that situation? And, and why would that be? What are the main drivers of, uh, of migration? I would say that obviously one of the big things we're facing is, is the climate emergency and there will be a large amount of climate migration. People tend to think of climate migration, they think of some, you know, the sea has rushed in and have covered over a huge amount of land, or there's been some giant cyclone or hurricane or something. But actually, of course, drought year after year, worse and worse weather conditions, worse growing conditions. Now, it can also be a much more subtle process. But I think we have to really think about how this debate might change. One of the things you learn in politics is it's always a challenge not to fight the last election and the next election. And so the debates that we're talking about now are the debates that have been had in the past, you might say pre-Brexit. But we're in a situation now where global birth rates are falling off a cliff. The global population is ageing fast. And there have been significant parts the world, Southeast Asia is one of them, where historically kings didn't go out and conquer land. Kings went out and conquered people and kidnapped those entire people and brought them back because they could never have enough people to actually meet, you know, to, 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 to work their land, to, to grow their kingdom. And we can already see this happening, say, with trained medical personnel. Um, there's a global shortage of medical personnel. There's a huge amount of um, poaching going on from left, right and centre. So I think we can imagine a world, we may very soon be in a world, where rather than worrying about migration, societies more and more, and we have seen cases of Germany's at a case in point, how do we attract people? We really need people. We need people, you know, to continue our society. Thinking about the ecological crisis and the way that it's likely to unfold, the way in which we're likely to see migration as a result, what role does food play? Well, I think as is suddenly, I mean, I've been using the hashtag food security on Twitter for, for at least a decade, and suddenly this has become a mainstream debate. One of the things that's absolutely crucial, and I was interested in too, I was having a debate with an economist journalist who was saying that actually, yes, lots of people were talking to him about crop diversity as well. Um, and they were very much mainstream kind of people. More than 50% of human calories coming from just four crops around the world is incredibly dangerous. So when we're thinking about in both the climate emergency, but even put that to one side, we desperately need to hugely diversify our crops for all of the health reasons that Sue was talking about earlier in the UK context, uh, but also very much for security. And again, you know, to mention Wakelands, they work on, on races. So they have diversity within a single field uh, in terms of, you know, some wheat that's tall, some wheat that's short, some wheat that does well with drought, some wheat that does well with it when it's wet. You know, we need to think about rather than those monoculture, identical, endless fields, as Sue was saying, much more vegetables and fruits, nuts, but also just even where we do have wheat or America. I saw that India is, is they're really starting to talk about going back to millet. Um, very traditional crop that's almost disappeared, but is actually much more drought hardy and generally a much tougher crop. So there's so many things out there. Uh, Hodmodons in the UK has done an amazing job in recovering you know, some, re some historically quite large crops and, and bringing them back again. So all of this can and must be done. Food also has the enormous potential, I think, to be part of the solution, the solution in which people as we were talking about right at the start of this, can imagine together the kind of future they want to live in. So the work that we've been doing with some of the poorest communities around the UK in partnership with local trusts, the big local communities, 150 of the poorest communities, we have noted how food and um, sharing food, responding to food crises, to people's experiences of hunger and hardship and poverty, how food becomes the root out of those crises to a more supportive, a more connected, a more convivial and a healthy community where people are, yes, staffing food banks and making sure that people have the food that they need, but also creating community kitchens, teaching cooking skills, teaching people how to use the kinds of ingredients that they can get more of, bringing people together out of loneliness and isolation to, to sit together over food in a dignified, kind, thoughtful way, because it's within the community. It's people in the community supporting other people in their communities. So at the same time as we start talking, and urgently, about the big structural and global issues that we need to work on, at the same time, I think it's really important that we amplify those stories of people working in their communities 
with food at the heart of those actions, but which also deal with many of the other issues that we need to deal with, like loneliness, like isolation, like health and well-being, and like, you know, good work, good, productive, caring, thoughtful work in communities. I agree with almost everything that Sue just said. What I'll disagree with as a start is about the continuations of food banks. I believe that we shouldn't rest until the last food bank closes because of lack of demand. Oh, I completely agree. I I completely agree with that. Um, But for right now, for right now, they are keeping very many people, far, far too many people away from starvation. It's this challenge, isn't it, of dealing with an emergency that is unfolding in real time in front of us and an emergency which is taking place slightly more invisibly, which is taking place over a slightly longer period. And and that kind of brings us back, Sue, to this uh, this question around global systems and global solutions. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure that we share the fear that climate change coupled with continuing biodiversity loss is going to lead to ever-rising food insecurity around the world. And I wonder how it is that we can make food systems. What are the fundamentals to make food systems themselves more resilient? So I think we, we've touched on lots of those issues already today. I think relocalising where it's appropriate to do so and, and within you know, the safe you know, ecological boundaries of places is is absolutely central to that. It does a number of things. You know, it takes more responsibility for growing what we can close to our communities. It reduces food miles. It gets fresh, local, seasonal food onto people's plates. It changes people's relationship with food. So people people remember where their food comes from and what healthy, nutritious, sustainably produced food actually looks and feels like. So that that's you know a critically important component of a more sustainable future. But I think the other big issue that we absolutely have to start facing into now is that we have to bring much more pressure on global food businesses to take a long, hard look at their business models and make rapid change. And that means disinvesting in some of the very things that have been incredibly profitable for them for years. This is akin for me to the sorts of activism that we saw uh, around tobacco and around oil and fossil fuels. There are some global food businesses whose core business models are producing far too much of the stuff that is just harmful to people and to planet. And if they were stopped tomorrow, they would have a net beneficial effect on all of our health and well-being. I want to see, first of all, much more shareholder and stakeholder activism around food businesses and global agri-food businesses. And we really need to draw attention, you know, focus our attention on those global institutions that try to broker international conversations to really focus on the impact of um, an industrialised, intensive global agri-food system on health, well-being, on climate and on nature. I'm going to come back to business in just a moment, Sue. But I'm, I'm kind of I'm thinking about soil and the role that it plays. And it seems to me, if we're thinking about global drivers, that the regeneration of soil, the prioritisation of soil health, reversing uh, aridification around the world, getting soil functioning, that, that that single objective of restoring soil health ought to be prioritised right up there alongside reducing CO2 emissions. And we hardly ever hear about it from, uh, from the global community. The science of soil is really, really underdeveloped. We talk about evidence-based science, evidence-based practice, but we can only have evidence if we've been asking the right questions and done the right research to discover the evidence that we need to make those sorts of you know critical decisions and you know, soil science is is relatively new but it is revealing so much and you know, absolutely agree with you Finlow that paying much more attention to those really critical activities that build soil organic matter that allow the extraordinary life that exists below the ground to flourish it's just essential and we don't necessarily need to wait for academia to come up with every answer to every no. question we in terms enough. of we, we know enough we now. know a lot yes. uh, and there's yes. so much anecdotal evidence particularly from indigenous communities and regenerative uh, farmers agroecological farmers that are trying to bring learnings from those indigenous communities into the way that they're farming as well yeah. in the western world yeah and i suppose i suppose i get a little bit grumpy because i i, I sit on some academic advisory boards 
and caused lots and lots and lots of requests for large sums of public money for research comes from institutions who are really interested in the novel and the new and who are looking at the next commercialised invention in food systems. And I think you're right to say that actually a, a lot of what we need to do much more of in food and farming systems is to do less and to support and replenish the absolute you know, foundations of nature that, that Natalie you know, talked about right at the start of this, that nature does know how to sustain life and has done incredibly well for millions of years. And it's our depressingly narcissistic idea that we somehow know better on some really critical issues that's getting us into this mess. I want to go back to responsibility. In many parts of the developing world, there seem to be two predominant food production narratives. One's still centred on subsistence agriculture, something which is much more akin to agroecology and production for local communities. And the other seems to be a race for embracing global markets to follow some of the most extractive forms of Western agri business. I wonder how British policy, both political and corporate, is influencing food systems in developing nations. I'm afraid at the moment, uh, overwhelmingly, British policy is directed in, the, in entirely the wrong direction towards that giant agribusiness model. And indeed, we've just seen uh, a new announcement of the aid policy, you know, our significantly depleted aid budget when the government broke its manifesto commitment uh, to 0.7% of GNP going to aid down to 0.5. And now um, we're having this heavy redirection towards aid for trade, supporting British businesses, which will often be multinational businesses. So I think our policies are headed in entirely the wrong direction. And that was also true, as, as Sue was saying, the government talks a great deal about a lot about innovation. And, you know, I'll be spending quite a bit of my coming time on the genetic modification brackets precision breeding bill, utterly misnamed. The government occasionally pays lip service to agroecology and soils. And, you know, what we saw was um, in the Environment Bill Now Act. I mean, I'm very proud of the fact that the first vote the Greens ever won in either House of Parliament was actually to insert soils as a priority area in that act. We lost it down in the other places we call the commons, uh, but we did get some concessions from the government of saying they're going to do things on looking after British soils. We're supposed to be seeing them round about now. Uh, we were promised in the spring, so we're very much looking out for that. But I don't think the government really gets this at all. I think we've really got to recapture that word innovation. Innovation means doing things differently, doing things in new ways. And that means the old way was the industrial monoculture. The new way is agroecology. And we've got to not just say, oh, we're leaving it. I think I would put it differently to Sudi. We're not leaving it to nature. What we're actually doing is finding new ways to work with nature. We're innovating uh, enormously. We're using a human knowledge and skills, which needs to be greatly developed and encouraged to very much look after our soils, look after our wildlife, and above all, look after ourselves. Because you ask, what do we do to change this around? We have huge externalised costs from our current food system. One of those externalised costs is extremely unhealthy societies, terribly poor public health. If we change this around and ensure that companies can't continue uh, to do that, to essentially poison us with ultra-processed PAP, we're all better off and we have a different model. It seems to me, Sue, that actually that there is a really positive example of the sort of thing that we're talking about when we look at the way that agroecology and regenerative agriculture have, have sort of taken over quite a lot of the consciousness within the conversation uh, around farming and, and smallholders in the UK in particular in the last five years or so. And I've always sort of been of the view that, that technology and information around technology is self-disseminating because the companies that invest in technology, whether that's GM or a tractor, uh, invest then in advertising it. Whereas knowledge, it's much harder to share knowledge because there isn't a profit necessarily associated with it. But social media has allowed us to tell a positive story in a way that we haven't been able to perhaps until now and to, and to have many more people listening to that positive message. And we've seen some really positive change as a result. You're absolutely right, Philo. And it's a real mission at FFCC to kind of amplify and illuminate those wonderful stories of people getting on and doing things already, of farmers, particularly new entrant farmers, actually, who are as passionate about the broader issues beyond the farm gate as they are about developing their farming practices. So telling those stories and providing support for the networks that are already forming. We're supporting a new network in Northern Ireland right now, the Growing Network, where farmers are working together 
to um, understand how they can transition their own businesses to more regenerative practices more quickly. There are lots of others all around the country. Telling those stories is, is a great encouragement to other farmers. Farmers tend to learn from farmers. They don't tend to be terribly interested in what policymakers have got to say, and it's not getting any better, but they will learn a lot from other farmers and they will learn on the farm gate they want to be able to see how things work with a very kind of practical orientation. So telling those stories becomes really critical. I, get, I guess where I get a little bit concerned right now is that for those businesses who have been very reluctant to change, for those who've been really, really dragging their heels, some of the very real anxieties around food security and global food supplies right now are giving them a real shot in the arm to carry on advocating for business as usual for a little bit longer. We see that with fossil fuel sector and we're seeing it with industrial intensive agricultural systems, taking environmentally sensitive land back into food production. And you know, even in my local community, farmers now plowing right up to the hedgelines, whereas not so long ago they were leaving you know, good two metre strips. So I think there is pressure on to, to demonstrate how we can manage both food security and keep our eye on the really critical issues in the climate nature crisis. I'm really pleased that you've brought up that, uh, that challenge around the way in which uh, many farmers' leaders have been responding to the current food problem crisis. And let's think about where that takes us. At the end of that narrative, if we don't change, I mean, you and I have discussed in the past our fears that we'll reach two degrees C well before 2050. And if we're seeing that now, then that just simply brings us closer to that end. So if people fail to regenerate soils and deliver widespread agroecology, if farmers do what uh, it's being suggested by the NFU that they do and just sort of up production, remove those field boundaries, take those hedges out. What does a two degree world look like for agriculture and food security? I mean, it's pretty terrifying, really. So, you know, a 1.5 degree world is bad enough. That is bad enough. So let, let's not let's not pretend that somehow 1.5 degrees is, is a result. That is the bare minimum that we need to be aiming for. But a two degree world will see sea levels rising by 56 centimetres. So that's half a metre sea level rises. Ten of the world's biggest cities are right on the coast. That's going to have massive implications for people in those communities and for population movement. The oceans get hotter and the oceans stop being able to absorb global heat that they're currently able to do. Coral reefs will be dying out dramatically. Heat waves will become the new norm. It will be really difficult to plan for planting and harvesting in the way that we have perhaps taken for granted for the last couple of hundred years. There will be a lot more rain, but not everywhere. So we'll see you know, flash floods and storms, which just wipe out harvests and make it really difficult to plant. We'll see you know, animals and plants unable to occupy the niches that they currently exist in with massive knock-on effects to ecosystems. And it will just become much, much harder to grow the small number of staple crops that we've come to rely on. And it's why, you know, returning to more localising food systems where we grow more of you know, a much wider range of food that is ecologically suited for those places and those conditions becomes really important. The crop trust is keeping an incredible repository of a whole range of things that we've grown and eaten in the past that we just don't anymore rediscovering a much wider range of food that we can grow in um, much more fragile ecosystems, much more precarious ecosystems, is going to become absolutely critical pretty quickly. Natalie, we've talked quite a lot already about the way in which we need to change things in order to deliver that food resilience. And clearly that food resilience is important everywhere. But at the same time, it's unlikely that we're going to sort food systems out quickly enough. And if we don't, there is going to be a significant increase in food insecurity and in global migration. So let's go back to that question of migration. How should Britain and other richer nations prepare for this challenge of mass migration? Well, first of all, sorry, I want to do that terribly politician-y thing and challenge the terms of your question, uh, in that political change and indeed system change. I think we have a general societal view that it happens slowly and gradually. You know, you get a 5% change, then a 10% change, then 
a 15% change. Actually, political change and systems change can happen very suddenly in giant leaps. And if we look at the politics, the last significant change in British politics was the rise of Margaret Thatcher. If you look on a global scale, about the same time Ronald Reagan. Um, Neoliberalism has dominated our politics. Globalisation has dominated our economics and our systems over the past 35, 40 years. You've only got to read the Financial Times at all kinds of levels saying this is broken, that's broken, gosh, this isn't working. And that, you know, you would see as the as the organ of the establishment or the organ of the current system, but they can see that it's broken. And we also can look back to COVID and think about what happened back in that March, that first lockdown. We had an emergency and suddenly the way the whole world worked changed enormously. So it is possible to make really significant change. But you know, as Sue was saying, we're now at 1.1, 1.2 degrees. The World Meteorological Organization has warned that there's a high risk, 50% risk in the next five years that we'll have one year that goes to 1.5. It won't be sticking at that point, but we could have one year at 1.5. We've got the uh, Office of Environmental Protection here in the UK, the new body created by the Environment Act, coming out and saying that our natural world is at absolutely a risk of massive tipping points in terms of biodiversity, uh, in terms of fisheries in the oceans, they're clearly particularly worried about, and in terms of soils. And so we can turn this around, uh, but we will, even if we do do that turnaround, of course, as you rightly say, still see large amounts of migration, climate migration, migration forced by ecological change and disaster. And the answer to that is we need a world in which those people are cared for and given appropriate places to live. And I think we're going to see a world in which those people are increasingly welcomed as people with energy, skills and talents that we need. The practical reality of the world we're in now is we face enormous problems To solve those problems, what we need are the inputs, the energy, the ideas, the abilities of as many people as possible, able to contribute as much as possible to all of our societies. I hear what you say, Natalie, and I share, you know, a a large amount of your analysis there, certainly in terms of your ambition for the way that people will respond. But, you know, even in the last decade in particular, we've seen this rise in populism where people like Donald Trump have found it very easy to whip people up so that, you know, walls are built again. And that's the big fear that I have, that progressive narratives won't be able to win through. And to an extent, the failure to recognise that people People have genuine fears about immigration over the last three decades. And to find a popular progressive response has arguably fed that rising tide of populism, that people have been dismissed, their fears have been sidelined rather than engaged with. We've been scared of this conversation. And if people feel they aren't being listened to, even though they support the basic tenets of localism, then they want to put that wall up around it. So I'm wondering whether there is a middle ground, whether we can establish a vision of national localism, which is a policy around migration that both liberals and social conservatives can both accept, even if neither of us are actually particularly ecstatic about it? Well, I think, first of all, you say Trump built walls. Well, Trump built some disconnected, utterly illogical bits of walls. I I meant Um, more emotional walls, mental walls. Okay. Well, but, you know, nonetheless, the practical reality is Trump utterly failed in what his plan and intentions were. Um, And the world can change very fast. Just look at the huge number of British people signing up saying they want to welcome Ukrainian refugees into their home. That's not something you know, that came very much from the grassroots up. It wasn't something created by any political party. I think I've, I've looked to the uh, Lord Harrington, the government minister responsible in the eye and seen the terror in his eyes of how to make this all work. You know, whether the government wants to make it work is another question, but there's no doubt at all that the public wants to welcome Ukrainian refugees. People can and do see that people are victims of the climate emergency. Very often people through no fault of their own have essentially contributed nothing to that emergency. And people will say, you know, we want to help, we want to care. And, you know, we're also looking at a practical point now where I was listening to the debate in the House yesterday on the economy and hearing particularly, you know, the uh, people from across the chamber from me, the Tories and, and crossbenchers saying this, this labour shortage it's a real problem. You know, how are we going to tackle this labour shortage and this skill shortage? What are we going to do about that? That shows you just how much the narrative, the discussion has changed in a very short period of time. We're in a very different situation now to we were 12 months ago. We're coming towards the end of the programme. And while I recognise that we've been talking about some 
pretty dark stuff. I, I think we have to. And much as I'm hearing, you know, what you're saying there, and and much as I can see that you, as a as a leader within a political party, um, has a faith in politics and an optimistic view of how we can change the future. The question is: Is democracy itself? as an institution able to cope with the enormous challenges that we face? Is it able to move quickly enough, deliver change that's deep enough? Or is it now inevitable, perhaps, that populism and misdirection, boosterism and the politics of blame will rise simply because the challenges we face as a society are increasingly insurmountable? I absolutely disagree with that, starting with the presumption that what we have now is democracy. The societies broadly that are doing the best around the world are the societies where parliament reflects the will of the people, where you have strong local institutions, strong local authorities. Uh, you know, Scandinavians is, is the obvious case study. Boris Johnson has 100% of the power in the Commons and effectively in the country, having won 44% of the vote, about 30% of uh, registered voters voted for him. We have power and resources unbelievably intensely concentrated in Westminster. Um, we are the most concentrated polity in Europe in terms of local government having very little power and very little resources and it's been eking or eked away all of the time. Uh, so as I once uh, did in debating the author of a book uh, titled Against Democracy is before we give up on democracy, let's try some of it. So the answer is to make the UK a democracy. I, I was in a... Uh, what does stop that the... look like? What, what oh, does that look like? What is democracy? Well, democracy is a, is a parliament that reflects the will of the people, resources and power being held locally and only referred upwards when absolutely necessary. Um, I was at a Stop the Rot demonstration uh, on, on Sunday and people are, you know, again and again calling for the facts that empowered citizens... You know, I was talking to school pupils on Monday saying, make politics what you do not have done to you. It's again that harnessing the talents, the knowledge, the skills, the energy of huge numbers of people. Democracy means everyone having the chance to do politics, to have a power of decision making, you know, starting with, with very young people and uh, going right through our society. But at the same time, we have what we have. And the conversation, you know, what you're proposing there is a conversation. It's 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 a proposal which I've heard throughout my life. People saying we don't have democracy in the UK. There isn't democracy in this, that or the other country in the developed world. We need something else, but we've not yet been able to deliver it. And we are in this period of emergency. What needs to change about the system that we have and, and how do we change it? Well, I think... Uh, what's changed enormously in say the last 20 years is 20 years ago in the house of lords where where i sit regularly um you'd get lots of people going oh the wonderful british constitution you know it's the mother of parliaments and this is the example for the world i don't even hear the greatest traditionalists saying that anymore an acknowledgement that this is really not working is pretty well, you know, if you went out and did a survey on the street among 100 people, is our politics broken? Does our system not work? You would get pretty well 100% agreement. Um, so the first thing that has to happen is for there to be a genuine desire to change. And I, you know, I joined the Green Party in 2006. And back then, pre-financial crash, going around and selling telling a story of change. What we're doing is now is not working, we've got to change it, um, was really hard work. Whereas now there's a survey which has been done over many decades asking people, do you think your kids and grandkids will have a better life than you've had? And that's increasingly, the, the, the negative figure on that is just getting steeper and steeper all of the time. So people get in their gut that what we're doing now, whether it's food, whether it's politics, whether it's economics, whether it's our education system, is not working. And the good news is that where we are now is profoundly unstable. The thing that will not happen is we will things will not continue as they are now. And history is not pre-written. I can't tell you what will happen next because no one knows. History is made by the actions of people. So it's offering people hope showing them those pictures of positive ways forward as Sue and the FFCC is doing beautifully when it comes to food and farming. Um, creating those pictures is the way in which we get them all involved and engaged and we make the kind of history that we want 
for the future. And it seems in the UK, much as the Conservative Party has been embroiled in crisis after crisis, almost as if they are trying to lose an election, they simply don't seem to be able to do it. So is some kind of uh, left and centre-left alliance inevitable and, and is it necessary? I don't think an alliance making, you know, stitching everything up in, in Westminster, more centralised power is necessarily the answer. I mean, what we actually have around the country is um, we haven't sort of settled it all yet since the recent local elections, but for four those, there were 16 um, places where Greens were in various forms of rainbow coalitions, different groups of local parties, sometimes local local parties uh, getting together and running councils. Herefordshire is one of those places that's like that. And we're actually seeing a different model of politics being built very much from the grassroots up. So it's happening at that kind of level. So I think what it is, is again, we come back to localism. Locals' decisions will be made in different places and voters will make those decisions. So we're moving forward to a different kind of politics. And just because Labour and Tory have been the two largest parties for a century doesn't necessarily mean that's going to continue. So if we're stuck with the democracy that we have, if we're stuck with the two party system and we don't find a way to change that uh, and fail to provide solutions, is it possible for society to opt out in some way? Because that seems to kind of be one of the options that we've been tossing around here for communities and society more broadly to sideline governments and just take collective control of their own future, to deliver agroecology despite government, to create resilience despite increased pressure on national resources and establish a more inclusive society despite the fear and rage of the populists on the far right. I shared Natalie's analysis. Democracy might be flawed, but um, the alternatives are very, very much worse. And in, in the kind of stories we've been sharing today, there are lots of examples where people in places are finding ways to collaborate, often across party political lines, to restore and regenerate their communities. And I think there, there are some prospects that do transcend party political lines. Um, it is a conservative notion to support freedom and to devolve responsibility and accountability to communities and to trust people to be able to manage their lives by and large themselves. Now, that traditional conservatism has become very much corrupted by a version of um, neoliberal politics that some countries are you know, in hock to at the moment. But that is, a, that is a route through to a more collaborative and connected version of the future that actually speaks to people from all political traditions, devolving responsibility, devolving agency, devolving power, but devolving resources to those people and places who ultimately will know best about what works for them and their communities and their lives with the right institutional support and arrangements around that. The thing that we haven't talked about today, and I think is, is probably a whole other podcast, is what, what's often called the fourth estate, you know, the, the way that information is shared, how national stories are told through the media. We're still very dependent on our mainstream media in the UK, what we read in the headlines of the most popular newspapers. And of course, social media, new forms of media and communications are changing the way we talk to each other and about each other dramatically. You know, along with all of the other huge issues that we've been talking about today, the world needs another way of challenging the control of those really critical elements of our public discourse, of our, of our public life, so that the stories we hear are much closer to the reality and aspirations of people's everyday lives. Because at the moment, it very often triggers our fears and weaponizes those things that uh, we, we need to be able to work thoughtfully on. That also needs really you know, serious attention. That's all we have time for. Fabulous. Thanks so much, both. That's been such a broad-ranging conversation and, and you've both been so insightful. Wonderful. I'd like to thank my guests, Sue Pritchard from the Food, Farming and Countryside Commission and Natalie Bennett from the Green Party of England and Wales. If you've enjoyed listening, please come back and listen to more. Tell your friends, like us, review us and share our links. Farmgate is funded by Sankalpa and you can join the conversation on Twitter by searching for Farmgate Podcast. I've been Finn Locustain. Bye for now.